Okay, everybody, welcome back to Talk of the Now podcast, and uh, we're back today with Mr. Alan Johnson. How are you doing today, Alan? I am doing great. Thanks great. for having me back on. Yeah, I'm so glad you were able to come back on, and um, today we are going to uh, dig a little bit deeper into um, topics of um, theology and Christianity and so forth, and I'm hoping to make this sort of an ongoing thing as we go through and just sort of uh, hitting a lot of the topics that I think that, um, you know, people ask in general, um, hoping that this reaches audiences that are not just um, maybe um, seasoned you know, um, Christians that have been Christians for years and years and have studied theology left and right, but, you know, just as much for people that are, you know, what we call seekers or non-believers that are skeptics maybe, or that are just, you know, it could be anybody from a 13 year old that doesn't even understand Christianity. Um, so I thought that it'd be great to go through some, uh, some more topical South, you know, type of things through the, everything reaching from the Bible to God to, uh, who is Jesus and, uh, and that sort of thing. So, um, but before we do that, um, we want to just uh, recap from last time a little bit. Um, Alan is a, um, a pastor at Old Peachtree Presbyterian here in the metro Atlanta area. Um, I guess if you could maybe give us just a little bit of a recap of um, your, your background from last time. Um, sure. Yeah. Well, I grew up in South Mississippi, grew up, uh, actually my parents became believers uh, shortly after I was born. So raised in a Christian home, going to a good church where I heard the Bible preached and taught and uh, knew from an early age that I needed Jesus. I can remember even as a child, uh, just a sense of my own sin and wanting to be in heaven, wanting to be with the Lord, certainly not wanting to be in hell and, uh, and trusting in him uh, from early days. Um, finished college, went to seminary in college. The Lord had called me to the ministry uh, just before my sophomore year began. And uh, so I studied at, uh, was at uh, Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson and graduated from there. And it's been uh, one year of that time at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. Served for several years as an assistant pastor in South Carolina, in the upstate area between Greenville and Columbia. And uh, since early 1995, have been here at Old Peachtree. Well, I think it's safe to say that you've probably seen a transformation of Duluth in your time since 1995. Absolutely. In fact, you know, it's funny. When I was in seminary, uh, we had a couple that, that we, uh, my wife and I got to be friends with, and they were from Duluth, Georgia. And we had no idea of Duluth at the time. They were telling us about it, telling us about how the area was growing so much. And uh, of course, then in South Carolina, we were going through Metro Atlanta on our way to where we lived in South Carolina. And we'd see the signs for Duluth. And I remember one time we actually just pulled off the highway and drove down what turned out to be Highway 120 and uh, found our way, just kept driving and driving and, and found ourselves in Duluth because we'd heard about it from our friends. Yeah. Didn't really, didn't see them, didn't see anything. I had no idea we'd one day live here. So yeah, in 1995, when we came here, it was already growing, bustling. The, the population of the county was really taking off and had already grown tremendously from what it once was. Since I have been here, the population of Gwinnett County has gone from around 400,000 now to just barely under a million. So yeah, it's really <laughs> grown and changed. Uh, of course, a lot of traffic uh, just helps to remind myself that all those people and all those cars are people who need Jesus and uh, people I'm here for. 
So yeah. it kind of helps make bearing the traffic a little easier. For those that aren't from Atlanta, um, Gwinnett County, and I grew up in Gwinnett, it is basically you could take any South Georgia, North Georgia, out in the boonies kind of county. And that's how it was for probably the first 150 years of, um, you know, of America or whenever, you know, the country was founded. But then the 70s hit and the 80s hit and it just became a boomtown for lack of a better word of county wise, like you had all these little towns and Duluth is one of them. You have towns like Lawrenceville, Duluth, Norcross, Buford, and they all sort of used to be these little railroad towns or little, you know, just kind of um, small towns that you would just drive through or go through on the railway. And they're just these little old country towns with um, people. And, and nowadays it's just turned into this metropolis of, uh, people from all over the world, basically, that are living in this whole area. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And something that's been interesting to see in the last 10 or 12 years or so is these towns that were overrun by the, the growth, either moving out from Atlanta or moving into the area, have been working very hard to reclaim their identity. And many of them have developed a strong town center uh, their own identity, uh, amphitheaters, um, shopping, uh, city halls, just trying to reestablish their identity as towns. And I think uh, many of them successfully. And uh, that's really enhanced the quality of life, I think, in those towns. Yeah, Duluth is a, is a particular example because just observing um, going to church in the, I don't live in the, the Duluth area, but going to church in the Duluth area, gotten to know a lot of people who live there and visiting the town. I mean, it, it went from basically a small, like, you know, 10 store front next to a railroad track area with just a bunch of sprawl suburbs around it to, I mean, now they're still building it. They're still building it up, aren't they? Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and with the additional population can really support, you know, a lot of nice things just economically. Uh, so in, in many ways, it's been great to see the towns reestablish themselves and develop themselves and the amenities that they offer. So mm -hmm. yeah, it's been nice. It is, it is somewhat staggering to me to think uh, having grown up in Mississippi population of the whole state is around 3 million. The population of the county I live in here is a third of the entire population of the state of Mississippi. And get out, get out there on I-85 and, and you'd believe it. Yeah, 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 that's for sure. Because Duluth is just, and I don't know, I guess I'm a little sheltered. I don't know how a lot of counties or towns work in other places, but at least in Duluth, you can live in like one part of Duluth and you'll be next to I-85 and then you'll live in another part of Duluth and then you'll like, I don't know how far away, but you might be like 15 miles away. Yeah. Oh, yeah, just, yeah. They spread out. So it's definitely, and cultural wise, you know, you have parts of Duluth that are just very, um, you know, you might have one part of Duluth that looks completely different than the other part as far as just the overall population. I mean, it's um, yeah. people from all over the country. I mean, all over the world and country for that matter and the world, you know. Yeah, and that's that's striking too. It's not just the growth in population size, but mm -hmm. the growth in diversity in the county has been amazing and uh, it's exciting and a great opportunity uh, in many ways. But yeah, it, it, it's a very different place than the one I came to in 95. Mm-hmm. When, um, when you speak of that, cause you, you have a church that's in Duluth, um, and I've gone by your church many times over on 120, <laughs> my wife and I, my wife and I always affectionately called it uh, Korean church row 
or Asian yes. church row, because there's a lot of, you know, I don't know if they're all Korean, but a lot of them are appear to be Korean churches that are on that, that little corridor. Yeah. Funny thing was when I was in college, uh, the Lord oper- uh, opened up an opportunity for me to go to Korea for the summer with PCA's mission group, mission of the world. It's spent a summer. I was teaching Korean missionary candidates, English and learned a little bit of Korean, not very much, but just a little and uh, funny how now the Lord has me in a place where there's such a large Korean presence. And uh, every now and then I'll see someone who's, you know, Korean and say, oh, young as hell. And, uh, <laughs> wow. they, they sort of look at me strange. I, you know, I'm not sure they expected that out of my mouth. But um, yeah. but Korean, uh, yeah, a huge Korean population in Duluth, especially Indian population. Uh, yeah, just very, very diverse, but yeah, significant mm-hmm. Korean presence here, several Korean uh, shopping centers, grocery stores, good kimchi. <laughs> yeah. Um, have you had, um, some, any, um, Korean, I guess you would maybe, I don't know if matriculation is the right word, but any Korean, um, families or individuals that have come to OP Street and have settled into OP Street? We have had a very few over the years, um, I think one reason for that is is that they tend to like to go to their Korean churches, which either may be uh, Korean language, Mm. sermons in Korean, um, or sometimes second generation Korean, where they still have a lot of the culture, even though it may be in English. And I found that a lot of them tend to like to go to either the Korean language churches or second generation Korean churches. Uh, we we have um, representation of other other races and uh, groups ethnicities in our church, um, but yeah, not as many with the Koreans. They seem to like to worship together. Okay, I, I, the reason I ask is because I've uh, made friends with some Korean people that live in Duluth. You know, like you said, it's a lot of people that mm-hmm. that have that background in Duluth. I was just wondering if any of them had made their way over to your church in that time. Um, yeah. On the other hand, we have a we have a, a Korean a language church right next door to us. We have a good relationship with them. They share some of our parking. They've uh, helped us out with some things. So uh, it works out well. Yeah, that is cool. Um, so let's get on to the topic for today that I want to talk about. Um, and that specifically has to do with salvation. Um, a book that I'm going to be kind of um, using as a guide, and maybe Alan has some that we can go to, and you can always bring up a topic within the topic or whatever if you wanted to, um, is R.C. Sproul's book. Now, that's a good question. I'll hold that up for the camera for anybody that's actually watching it. Um, and he goes through many topics, and I think these were submitted. This, this was before the Internet age, pretty much. And um I don't know if he had any email to him, but a lot of just questions, I guess, that he'd received over the years or had to answer showing a copyright of 1996. Um, So I would imagine maybe some people got a, you know, somebody maybe got an AOL email back then. But um, one of the topics that I wanted to start with is not the first one Uh, in theology. You know, I guess we think about the big three a lot of times when it comes to topical things for theology, like God, um, Christ, um, maybe the Holy Spirit, as well as salvation. I wanted to start with the topic of salvation because to me, it's one of those topics that I, I just thought from my own experience when I was 15, as a you know person that was seeking to understand truth, um, that was something that came to my mind. And not only that, but sort of the um, what, what you hear, I guess, even from maybe Hollywood or um, television, maybe even reading articles and seeing books. Salvation, 
worldwide seems to be sort of this picture sort of like you know i guess some people in some cultures might call it nirvana even um and so i wanted to talk about it and you know in, in the i guess in respect to christianity what do we mean by salvation and um how does that relate to humanity yeah when we talk about salvation we're talking about something very uh, very specific uh, the bible uh, of course very early on genesis chapter 3 uh, gives the account of uh, man's fall into sin through Adam and Eve's disobedience to God in the Garden of Eden, which plunges us into what our own uh, Presbyterian Westminster Confession uh, and Catechism call an estate or a, condi a condition of sin and misery. And part of that let's see Okay, sorry, we had a little mix-up there. Go ahead, Alan. So in that state of sin and misery, part of the sin and misery of it is we are alienated from uh, the Lord, that we're separated from him by our sin. He's holy, we're not. So to be saved or salvation, uh, biblically, has to do with our being reconciled. Well... So to be saved means to be reconciled with God or have the relationship with God restored. Uh, and that happens through Jesus who on the cross died for our sins and sins of all who believe in him and uh, provides us his own righteousness, which is what we need to be right with God, which is what the Bible means when it speaks about salvation. It's not specifically talking about our life being better here and now in this world. And sometimes some ways becoming a Christian may make your life harder. That salvation is something very specific and it means to be restored to a relationship with God, adopted into his family through Jesus, and uh, then heaven bound as a result. And when we die, our soul immediately goes to be in the presence of the Lord. So that's what we're talking about. And by the same token, the gospel the, the word simply means good news, and the gospel is that good news or message about what Jesus came into this world to do for lost sinners like us. And sin is very specific. It has to do with our alienation from God, our rebellion against him, our corrupted nature, which is why we tend to do bad things. Um, and in salvation, those are, those are addressed, and, uh, and our nature has changed. We're born again which means we've gone from being spiritually dead and rebelling against God to spiritually alive and, and desiring to know him and to believe in Jesus. So that's uh, basically what the Bible's talking about when it speaks of salvation. It's pretty specific. Mm -hmm. What about um, perhaps if we met somebody that uh, doesn't understand all that and they said, which you sort of, you answered it in, mm -hmm. in that question, but I've heard this one many times from the outside world, if you will, that, um, the whole everybody is um, there's different ways up the mountain, so to speak. You know, you right. might have one way that's the um, I don't know, lack of a better word, maybe the um, this this religion's way or that religion's way. But as long as we're getting up to the same, what do you say to that sort of, um, um, I guess, logic? There are several ways to address that. And of mm -hmm. course, uh, as, a, as a Christian, I'm coming from it biblically. Um, there is only one God. 
and there is only one way to God. And that thought didn't originate with me. Jesus himself said it. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. How do we come to the Father through Jesus? Well, we come as we recognize our own sinfulness, our need to be right with God and believe in Jesus. Now, the thing too, another way to look at it though, is with all the other religions in the world, the thing that makes them different from Christianity is they tend to emphasize what we have to do, you know, what we have to do to get up that road. Whereas in Christianity and in the teaching of the Bible, uh, it's all about what God has done for us to restore us to that relationship with himself. You know, we, Every other religion, you're climbing that road to the mountaintop, or at least trying to. And in Christianity, Jesus himself came down the road to get us and to carry us up to, to God. And it turns out there is only one way to be right with God, only one way to be in heaven, and that is through what Jesus did. So I might say, well, what do I have to do then? Well, the Bible's very clear about that. We have to believe in Jesus. You know, uh, the Apostle Paul is brilliant as a theologian as he was, and the depth of so much of what he wrote, so much so even the Apostle Peter could say in Second Peter of Paul's writings that he writes some things that are hard to understand. This same Apostle Paul, when a, when a jailer uh, in the town of Philippi asked him, what do I have to do to be saved? Paul's answer to him was, was so simple. He just said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, you and your house. And by saved, we mean all that we just talked about with salvation, restored to a relationship with God, uh, the God we were created to know and sin ruptured that relationship and to know that you would be with him in heaven. So uh, biblically, there is only one way to God, and that is through the Lord Jesus Christ. So I like to think about um, one of the, the um, verses that I remember sort of um, as a younger Christian confused me. Um, I think it confuses a lot of people sometimes if they're not careful is Jesus, when he's walking along in his walk, um, on earth, he comes across the rich, is it the rich young ruler that, um, he meets, I can't, I, I can't remember the verse where he's, he comes up to this, uh, I, um, a rich man, a rich young man. Mm -hmm. And he asks him, um, you know, how do I get salvation? And, and, and then Jesus explains it to him and then he tells right. him. Is it to go? I, I, I'm sure you remember, but he tells them to go sell all you have and so forth. I was wondering how you could explain that. Sure. Yeah. The rich young ruler um, who, yeah, he comes to Jesus and he says, what do I have to do to get eternal life? And Jesus actually says to him, keep the commandments, mm -hmm. which is true. But Jesus point was he had not, but let's save that for a moment. And the man starts rattling off, you know, all these commandments, all, you know, or Jesus actually rattles off some commandments to him. Some from the second table, the second half of the 10 commandments, you know, your father and mother, uh, you know, uh, don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery. And the young man says, all these I've done for my youth. I've kept the commandments, Jesus, and so far so good. And then Jesus says, okay, there's one thing you lack, sell everything you have give it away to the poor, give the money away to the poor and come follow me. And it says that the man was sad because he had great wealth and he walked away. And one of the gospel writers actually says, Jesus looked at him and loved him, but he let him walk away. Now, I guess the difficulty is, does that mean that I have to do that? Um, 
Well, no, he was, he was trying to emphasize to the man his own sinfulness because what he was really testing him on was the very first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And he proved to him that he had another God before the Lord God, and that God was his money. Now, that was one particular conversation. Jesus was testing this man in this way. That's not a command that Jesus gives to everybody. You know, the, the, it's not believe in Jesus plus give everything you own away. That's not what Paul said to the Philippian jailer. Uh, but Jesus was making a very uh, particular point with that rich young ruler that his money had his heart. His money had him. He didn't have his money, but his money had him. And so he challenged him on that. And the man failed the test. He walked away. Now, the irony is... He just walked away from a far, far, far greater treasure in Jesus than he could possibly ever have in this world. Mm -hmm. And yet he did. He walked away to what he thought was true wealth, even as he was walking away from true wealth, of the true wealth of knowing the Lord through Jesus. But that was a very specific conversation that Jesus had with him and called him to do that. That's not uh, his call to everyone, although we are to put uh, put the Lord above everything else. But the fact is you and I and every, every other believer fails to do that daily. And that's why we need Jesus who did that for us mm-hmm. and died for our failure to love the Lord, our God above everything else. So I, I, the reason I think about that one is I would imagine somebody that actually has some intelligence to think about or weigh whether or not they want to become a Christian thinks about mm-hmm. these things. And they might be looking in the Bible and looking at verses of, of how, what Jesus actually said about, becoming Christian or what it is to be a Christian. Um, another one I, I might think of is because um, somebody might say, you know, Hey, I, does that mean that I need to sell everything? I Do I need to be the next mother Teresa in order to be a Christian or be a successful Christians in the eyes of God? You know? Sure. Yeah. Well, remember uh, Jesus was often dealing with two kinds of people. He was dealing with those who were sinners and knew it. You know, uh, the woman caught in adultery, uh, for example, and he he was very gentle and very compassionate. And he, you know, he said, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And then they all walked away and he said, uh, you know, no one condemns you. Neither do I. Now go and sin no more. But he was very gentle within the, the sinful people who knew that were sinful were, were flocking to Jesus. But he also dealt with people who thought they were righteous. Uh, Jesus told the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector about that very thing. You know, there was the Pharisee who praised God for what a wonderful guy he was. You know, he tithed, he did this, he did that. Hmm. His attitude was God was pretty lucky to have a guy like this man. And then he talks about the tax collector who was also there in the temple. And he just hit himself in the chest. His head was bowed and he kept saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said it was that man rather than the self-righteous Pharisee who went home right with God. So when Jesus spoke to the Pharisees, he had sharp words to say to them, but he was trying to get through their their own self-righteousness to see how unrighteous they were in heart so that they could receive the righteousness that Jesus offered. And that's a problem with people today. And and even people who grew up in church, uh, they tend to see themselves as, as pretty good people. And pretty good people don't feel the need of a savior. Uh, Those who know their own sin and guilt do. And that's why Jesus said, I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Uh, 
not that there are anyone is anyone righteous who doesn't need Jesus, but some people think they are, and that's a, a hindrance to their believing in, in him. But Jesus often would, like this rich young ruler, he said, keep the commandments and you will live, which strictly speaking is true. If we have always and could always and will always keep the law of God perfectly, uh, ignoring for a moment our guilt in Adam, then yes, we would be right with God. But the, the, the key point Jesus made with the rich, rich young ruler is we haven't. And even though he thought he had, he was grossly violating that first commandment that he wouldn't give up his money to follow Jesus. Again, not a command to all people, but a specific test for that man. And that, um, the reason for salvation um, being necessary, as I guess we'd say, um, starts with Genesis 1, right? God is the creator. Yeah. And um, then Adam and Eve sin, obviously. Um, most people, I think, would know that is, if not, um, a lot of people would. But um, the Bible, even in the first of Genesis, God promises to give people a way of salvation in, in that first chapter, does he not? Yes. Uh, when he's talking actually to the serpent, uh, he speaks to Adam, he speaks to Eve, he speaks to the serpent. And he says to the serpent uh, that uh, the, the seed of the serpent would, uh, would, would bite uh, would strike the heel of the seed of the woman and the seed of the woman, the descendant of the woman would strike the head or crush the head of the descendant of the serpent, which is sometimes referred to as the proto-evangel, the first uh, declaration of the gospel that ultimately a descendant of Eve would crush the head of the descendants of Satan, which is seen as happening at the cross when Jesus died that was Satan striking Jesus, and it appeared Satan had won, and yet Jesus' death and subsequent resurrection was the moment of victory and triumph over Satan and over sin and over death, which, by the way, is wonderfully depicted in C.S. Lewis's book uh, in the Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe with Aslan. Uh, that that uh, ancient magic that Aslan refers to in, in offering himself up on the altar. But another thing, even though that's the first uh, hint of the gospel that, of God providing a savior in Genesis, uh, you can trace that through the whole Old Testament uh, leading up to Jesus finally coming into the world mm. and, uh, and recorded as it is in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Of course, Matthew and Luke, the great Christmas stories, the fulfillment of the, the long waiting and longing for the coming of the Messiah, which that verse in Genesis three points to. Mm. Yeah. Um, which that sort of leads to um, something as far as, okay, if I remember being a 15 year old and praying that uh, not knowing if I was a Christian or not praying that God would show me what's in his word. Mm -hmm. And um, that you might have somebody that has never bought a Bible before, or never had one before. And they'll look at this thing, you know, I don't have one handy, but you know, they'll look at it and they'll say, okay, here I have this thick book. Okay. I guess I'll start with page one. What, what would you tell that person to do? Well, uh, you know, that's how we normally read a book is start at the beginning. Although I know some people like in a novel, like to read the end and say, Oh, it's going to end first. I don't understand that. But uh -huh. when it comes to the Bible, um, that can be a tough way to read it. Uh, the Bible, uh, you know, it's nothing wrong with reading it that way. But uh, as far as getting what really is the message in the heart of the Bible, it might be 
helpful. Um, certainly Genesis is critical. Genesis sets in motion uh, not only the need for our salvation, but then God's promises uh, through Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob concludes with that great uh, novella, short novel, as it's called, of the Joseph story, Joseph's going down to Egypt. So Genesis is a great book to begin with. Uh, some people get really bogged down going through the law of God in Exodus 21 and, and on into Leviticus. And those can be tough. Uh, a lot of laws that, uh, that pertain to Old Testament Israel and can be helpful to us today, even though they don't uh, apply to us like they did to them. So, um, you know, if you wanted to start in Genesis, read Genesis. Uh, it's great. But then maybe go and check out the book of Matthew the Gospel of John in the New Testament, Book of Matthew in the New Testament. Uh, maybe follow that up with um, the Book of Romans, which is as which is as probably as much a systematic presentation of the Gospel in, in Romans one through eight that you'll come across. Uh, the Book of Acts is great. Acts is adventure. It involves you know preaching and getting thrown in prison and, and shipwrecks, and uh, but it's the story of the beginning and early growth of the Christian church. Um, remember, the Bible is a book, but it's a book of books, 66 books that make it up. And uh, there's nothing wrong with saying, hey, I'm just going to pick out the book of the Gospel of John and read that. Now, it's not isolated. It ties in with what goes before in the Old Testament, and what follows in the New, but it can be taken out and read just on its own. And a book like John, the Gospel of John, or Romans, really gets at the heart of what the message of the Bible is. And then later, as you get more familiar with it, you know, branching out, reading more of the historical books, uh, reading some of Paul's other letters, which address difficulties with people and churches and more teaching. Uh, a lot of people are fascinated with Revelation. Uh, in fact, my wife and I like to read the Bible together after we eat in the evening and pray together. We're reading through Revelation right now. And uh, all I would say about Revelation, a couple of things. One, if you want to understand Revelation, uh, it's more helpful to know the Old Testament than it is today's headlines. And the second thing is the message of Revelation is Jesus wins and we win in him. So if you understand that, you, you know a lot about the book of Revelation. It's not an easy book. A lot of, it, it communicates with symbolism, uh, symbolic images, symbolic numbers, and uh, but it is a, a book of hope because it speaks of the ultimate victory of Christ and the ultimate uh, destination of his people. And that is the new heavens and the new earth. Mm -hmm. Well, um, we don't have time today to go through. There's so many aspects of salvation, but <laughs> so we don't have time to go through, I guess, um, all the aspects of, uh, you know, um, election, predestination, you know, and that sort of thing, because that's kind of a deeper subject in some ways. Um, but I will say, um, you know, for a person that might just be saying, okay, um, I, I, you know, I've read into this and I, I think I might want to become a Christian or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, now they might say, okay, well, that's fine. I, I think, I think I'm feeling it. You know, I, 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 what, then their next question might be, okay, now what do I do? <laughs> what would you advise? Yeah, well, the one thing I would advise uh, is to get involved in a in a in a good church, and by good I mean a church that is is one teaching and preaching the Bible, so that when you come away from hearing a sermon, you feel like you understand that passage of the Bible, a sermon on a text of Scripture. Um, 
that it is not only preaching the Bible, but preaching it in a way that points to Jesus as our hope. You know, even if you hear a sermon on a text of scripture and you come away feeling like I've just got to try harder or I'm just a failure or I just need to dig deeper, you're missing the point. The point of the Bible is to point us to Jesus and the forgiveness, the cleansing, the life that we, the hope that we have in him. So preaching the scriptures, preaching the good news of Jesus in the scriptures in a church where people love Jesus and, and love one another because they love Jesus and, and would want to welcome you in and, and, you know, want to encourage you. So as believers, there is that individual element of my own, you know, turning from sin, believing in Jesus, trusting in him alone as my savior, but we don't live the Christian life alone. We need to be part of a church. And so I would say that that is vitally important. Uh, of course, uh, you know, reading the Bible just to learn more. Uh, you mentioned Spro R.C. Sproul's book. That's a good question. Um, I'm a reader. I love reading. Um, no shortage of great books out there. Somebody could read to, um, you know, to grow in their faith, to learn more about uh, Jesus, about the Bible. Um, getting back to the question of salvation, though, talking about uh, different aspects of it. Um, we like to use three words to describe it, and they're kind of wonky. They're theological terms, justification, sanctification, and glorification. Justification is what we talked about, being right with God. Sanctification then is uh, how we now live as Christians. You know, we want to live to honor the Lord. We want to reflect him. We don't do that to be saved. We do that because we have been saved. And then glorification speaks to our hope of being in glory with the Lord, where we will be with him, we'll be sinless, and that's what we're looking forward to. So it helps to think of the Christian life, I think, in those three categories. Uh, I've sometimes heard it put this way or put it this way myself. You know, how do we get right with God? How do we, how do we live now that we're right with God? And what's our hope now that we're right with God? So, um, but yeah, I would say, you know, for somebody who's believed in Jesus, to be part of a church is vital. I mean, the Bible teaches that. We need that to encourage each other. And uh, so that's definitely an important thing, but not just any church, a, a church that is preaching and teaching the Bible, the gospel for the people that love each other and, and, and love to worship the Lord together, be together, encourage each other. So vetting a church out is a good idea then. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so I think that if you were a new believer, say you are a believer or a new believer, first thing you probably accepted Christ into your life. Second thing you're saying get into a church, read, start reading your Bible. Um, start, start from somewhere such as uh, Genesis and then read some gospels and um, the gospels being Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, mm -hmm. um, read through Romans um, and then go from there. Um, you know, the next phase, which we'll talk about some other time as well is um, that you mentioned the sanctification part. Um, mm -hmm. And I think some, some believers this is sort of, to me, a controversial um, topic in some ways, because a lot of people are will argue over the means of that. You know, how do you grow in your faith? Um, what might, um, so let's say we've got a person that's listening that's maybe, um, you know, a year into, into, into being a new believer. You know, they go to church every year, they go to church every week, and they're, you know, maybe they're getting involved with a, um, a Sunday school class at church or something like that. Um, what... Um, what are some of the means by which we grow in our faith? Well, and we have an expression that uses that very word we call the means of grace. 
Uh, and, and by that, we mean they are means by which God uh, communicates his grace to us in Christ. We grow in Christ, we're stronger. Uh, one is the Bible, which I mentioned, and the reading of the preaching, especially the preaching of it, uh, teaching of it. God uses his word to teach us, to help us to grow, to feed our souls. Um, the sacraments, uh, obviously, if someone's just become a, a Christian and they haven't been baptized and they join a church, they would want to be baptized, which is that sign, that initiatory right of, of coming into, belonging to the church in the world. Uh, of course, then the Lord's Supper, uh, communion is a means that God has given to his church and the eating and drinking of those elements of bread and wine or bread and juice in faith. Uh, we are, we are communing with Christ. We are strengthened and, and encouraged and nourished by the Lord Jesus. And those are, those are important things. Um, and they're also public things. And that's, that's, I think, a key point for growing in the Christian life is participating in these public things like the preaching of the word and the worship of the church, sacraments as they are administered by the church. Prayer is also uh, an important means and prayer uh, in, in the context of worship, public, corporate prayer, whether it's the pastor leading in prayer, praying together, praying in a group, and of course, praying on our own. Prayer is just, is just talking with God. And he speaks to us in his word, the scriptures, the Bible, and uh, we talk to him in, in prayer and we know that he hears us, know that he'll answer us. So those are, those are some of the things uh, that we call like means of grace, means that God helps to grow us. And remember, they don't do that automatically. They do it because Jesus blesses them to that end. Jesus grows us. Mm -hmm. And those are ways of communing with him, learning from him, walking with him uh, as Jesus grows us in his grace or grows us as Christians. Um, another topic, and I guess we can end on this one so we don't go too long here, but um, is um, evangelism. Uh -huh. You know, once somebody's in the game, if you will, <laughs> if you yeah. become a Christian and, you know, somebody approaches them, they say, well, you know, you got to start talking about Jesus, right? And they're like, what do you mean? And then they're like, well, you got to start evangelizing. I have found over the years that that you will get five different answers from five different people a lot of times when you ask, how does evangelism play in the life of a Christian? And, um, and I know that can, um, depend on another topic, which is, you know, spiritual strengths and spiritual gifts and so forth. But I guess if you could maybe do the thousand foot overview of how that plays into it all. Sure. Yeah. Well, you know, you talk about the great commission where, where Jesus gave the commission to the disciples to, uh, to go into all the world and, and teach and, and baptizing them, teaching everything I've commanded you, mm. um, which is a, a commission to the church. And you mentioned each person's gifts. We're all part of the church. We may play different roles in that. Um, I have to say that as someone who is an introvert by nature, I'm not the kind of person who automatically goes around and grabs someone by the lapels and says, brother, have you been saved? Um, but, you know, in conversation, if it goes in that direction, I may, I may, you know, just talk to them. Did you grow up in church? What's your background? You know, what do you think about Jesus? Uh, sometimes it helps to, in evangelism, not so much to uh, make statements at first, especially as, as it, to ask questions and listen, try to understand where someone is, where they're coming from. Um, yeah, different people are, are gifted in different ways, uh, and they're different, uh, there are different approaches to evangelism that are more formal and organized and developed. But I think the best way is just to know the gospel. Uh, to know, you know, that I'm a sinner. Jesus came for sinners that believed in him. He saved me. 
save you too. And, um, you know, to let that come into conversation as, as it does more naturally, it's always, at least I've found very difficult to just bolt into it and it makes the whole thing somewhat awkward and, and, and unnatural and strange. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't think that's what Jesus calls us to do. You know, uh, the apostle Peter says that we should always be ready to give an answer for the hope that we have, uh, which seems to imply that someone would ask, and sometimes maybe they will. Uh, sometimes it's just the conversation kind of goes in the direction of spiritual things, and it's kind of natural just to say, well, what do you think about Jesus? You know, I'm a Christian. I'd just be curious, what are your thoughts of Jesus, you know, and kind of go from, from there. Uh, the last thing I think we want to do is just lay a guilt trip on people. You know, you talk to Christians about prayer and evangelism. Those are the two best ways to make them feel guilty. But that's not the point. Hmm. Remember that, uh, that Paul said to the Philippian jailer, he didn't say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and evangelize and you will be saved. Uh, it's Jesus alone. But, you know, if a guy falls in love with a girl, he tends to talk about it, right? It's going to start coming out. And if we love Jesus and we, we, we love what he has done for us and reconciling us to God. Um, I think inevitably it's going to kind of come out a little bit uh, and maybe more and more in conversation. I was just thinking about that the other day because I'd heard there is a, um, a word that I've, or a phrase that I've heard called spiritual multiplication. Have you heard of that term lately or ever? Not really. What do you mean by spiritual multiplication? um, I think it sort of has to do with sort of um, evangelizing uh, maybe, um, and then seeing someone become a Christian and then you help them grow in their salvation or, you know, maybe, maybe lead them, as I say, in um, our Christian circles, disciple them in some Mm -hmm. ways. And then that person will give it away, if you will. And that sort of, that's kind of um, what I've been kind of led to believe that that's what spiritual multiplication means in a lot of ways. But I say that because um, I think the danger that I would warn any, any new Christian might be to not use the means of grace as a litmus test or a scoreboard for how you are growing in salvation, you know, as far as um, favor with God, if you will. <laughs> yeah. Whether, yeah. Yeah. Well, and I mean, it was Paul and was second Timothy two twenty two who said, you know, to, to, to teach other, to teach faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Mm. And so there is that principle of, of multiplication in, in um, you know, if people come to know Christ, then they too might reach a point where they're able to lead others to Christ and help them grow in their faith. Um, certainly would, you know, want to see that kind of thing happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and not only that, but like, you know, for instance, it could be, um, you wouldn't want a impressionable Christian to think that if they're leading small groups or if they're, if they're fervently praying all the time that right. this is going to, I guess um, the biggest warning you could give anybody, I think that is thinking about becoming a Christian is that Christianity does not promise a ease of life in this lifetime. You know, that if anything, it could get harder for you. True. Especially if you live in a place where Christians are persecuted. Um, mm. Yeah. Life, life could get harder. And in realizing, I think it's important, you know, for most people, um, their, their vocation is what the Lord had called them to, whether that's, you know, computer programmer or engineer or accountant, whatever. And, um, you know, while I appreciate people who volunteer and do things in the church, 
for most Christians, their callings, you know, vocationally and to be a, a husband or wife or father or mother or child, um, you know, you, you continue living your life. You just do it now to the glory of God and you do it now with the joy that Jesus has redeemed you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some people, Jesus may save them and then call them into ministry or missions, but most people he saves them and they continue on uh, in their lives. So I remember Jesus had cast a, a demon out of, uh, out of someone. Uh, and the man wanted to follow Jesus and Jesus said, no, go home and tell how much the Lord has done for you. You know, he wanted to go with Jesus and Jesus said, no, stay home. Not everybody's called to be Paul. Exactly. Exactly. Sometimes. And for most, uh, it was a Michael Horton who wrote a book called ordinary, um, that, that, you know, most Christians and most people, we lead ordinary lives and do ordinary things. The difference is what makes it extraordinary is we're doing it for the Lord, and doing it out of love for him. So he said to the man, go home and tell him what the Lord has done for you. And I think for most believers, that's, that's our calling, just to, be, to, to live for Jesus at home, at work, school, wherever you might be. I think that's good to, to remember, even for a seasoned Christian, is that we don't need, not everybody needs to be a miniature version of Billy Graham, for example. Right. <laughs> as great as Billy Graham was, and probably as much as he did for the kingdom by going out there and going to China, you know, South Africa, everywhere across the world, you know, and probably had great influence um, for Christianity. We don't necessarily even need to be a microcosm of him. You know, it's just sort of follow the spirits leading on what your calling is. Right. Exactly. And if you're the next Billy Graham or whoever, he'll, you know, he'll make that obvious, but Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. I think that's a temptation for young ministers to try to imitate their favorite uh, preacher, and, uh, you know, God already had one of them. He, he wants, you know, he wants the first one of you. Yeah. Great, great point. All right, Alan. Well, I appreciate it. And I think that, um, we've covered a good bit of what, uh, salvation is for today. And, um, maybe next time we'll, uh, we'll get it. We'll, we'll attempt to tackle the subject of God. Maybe. How about that? Sounds that's a big subject. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thanks, Alan. Have a great day. Thanks, Gene. You too. Right. Thanks for joining us here. My pleasure. Mm-hmm.